All right, if you have a Bible tonight, why don't you open it up to the book of Luke, chapter 1. Luke, chapter 1, and we're going to talk about John the Baptist. Now, <clears throat> exactly who John the Baptist is and what we know about John the Baptist comes mostly from the Gospels. There's no other mention of him through the Bible, uh, except in some ways that we'll talk about tonight. But when people talk about John the Baptist, what they mostly think about is this crazy dude who lived in the desert. And that's mostly because John the Baptist was a crazy dude who lived in the desert, okay? So there's some one-to-one there. But John the Baptist is so much more than just some kook that went crazy and lived in the desert. John the Baptist fulfills so many paradigms of Scripture that are coming together that tonight what I want to do is talk to you about who John the Baptist is and why he had to come and why he did what he did so it can illuminate who Jesus is better. So up to now in the book of Luke, what we have is two miracle babies, all right? If you're just joining us in the book of Luke, we've had two stories. One is the miracle pregnancy of Elizabeth. She is too old to have children, yet she's pregnant. She is supernaturally pregnant by natural means, meaning she had sex with her old husband and got pregnant. Let's all go, a little bit, okay? But that's what happens. She's pregnant. It's a miracle. It's supernatural, but by natural means. And then we have another story of a miracle pregnancy. This is of Mary, and she is supernaturally pregnant by supernatural means. The only thing that we know about how she became pregnant is the Holy Spirit falls upon her. All right? So now we have come to the point in the book of Luke where John is about to be born. And so in Luke chapter 1, verse 57, it says this. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and rejoiced with her. It's literally unending mercy. If you remember, we talked about in Israel at this time, for a woman to have no children was shame. Okay, the literal thought was you're cursed by God if you're a woman and you don't have a child. So that she finally has a child to everyone around her shows her that God has forgiven her, even though she really hadn't done anything wrong. And now mercy has fallen on her. If you were here last week, we talked about the entire theme of the first chapter of the book of Luke is mercy. The word is used over and over and over again. Mercy, 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 mercy. Uh, that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. According to Jewish law, on the eighth day, uh, little boys had to be circumcised. If you don't know what circumcision is, I have a video we're going to watch. Kidding. <laughs> Just right with the word circumcision dash worst thing ever. That's what you write down. And if you don't know what it is, please come talk to somebody after this, but not me. Okay. So they came to circumcise him. In Jewish culture, you did not name the child for eight days until the circumcision occurred. The circumcision was seen by Israel as becoming a member of the people of Israel, okay? You're a covenant member now. And the second that little boy is circumcised, he is an heir to the promises of God given through Abraham. This is a huge religious deal. To the people of Israel, that little boy is unsaved until he can be circumcised. And once he's circumcised, he's okay. So they didn't name their kids before then. Because if they died, they figured they died cursed and they didn't want to know him. So they're going to name the boy now. Now, they have been ordered by God. Zechariah and Elizabeth have been ordered by God to call him John. And uh, 
that is crazy out there because uh, you named your children after the fathers or at least people in the father's family. And so uh, they come and they, they say to her and they come to, to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. So she obeys. And so they, they appeal the decision and go to the father, Zechariah, and say, shouldn't we name this kid Zechariah? And he says, no. Actually, he writes it down, but we'll get into that next week. He writes it down and says, no, we're going to call him John. Now, the, the Hebrew word for grace, the Greek word for grace is charis. It's where we get our word charity from. The Hebrew word for grace, or at least the concept of it, is the Hebrew word hanan. Hanan. In Hebrew, uh, in Hebrew culture and Jewish culture, oftentimes names came with some reference to God. Either El for God or Yah for the covenant name of God, Jehovah. That's why when you open up your Old Testament, you're going to see names like Hezekiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah. They all have us in them or Els, Ezekiel, things like that. When you see the name John, what you are seeing are two words put together. The first name, God, Yah, and grace, Yahanan. You see how that becomes Yahanan, Yahanan, those things. When they became, the languages changed into Greek and Latin and those things. That's how those words were mixed together. The word, the name John means God is gracious. That's what it means. God is full of grace. He is gracious. Here's Elizabeth. She's considered accursed. She has a son who, to the covenant people, takes away her shame. Why? Because God is merciful. He's gracious. It's a picture of the gospel and the birth of a little baby. So we have this, uh, this, this child born, and uh, they, they name him John, and, and we'll get into some things that happen. But in verse 65, this is the public's reaction. Fear came on the neighbor's. Uh, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. There's a few things I want to talk to you about John the Baptist. And one of the things is, from the beginning, the people of Israel knew this kid, something is going to happen with him. Miraculous events surround him. His mother is too old to have a child. She has a child. His dad is a priest who gets to go into the temple one day a year. He walks in or his lot falls. He gets to go into the temple. He sees a vision. He comes out and he can't talk for nine months and he cannot speak. And because he doubted God and he walks back and he lives his nine months out and God had told him, you will not speak until you obey us, uh, until you obey me, basically. They come to him, they say, what should we name this child? Should we name him after you, Zechariah? And he writes down, no, his name is John. Boom. And all of a sudden he can talk and he sings a song. It's a glee episode again. We're going to talk about that next week. All of a sudden he can speak. And he starts praising God. And so the story spreads. Remember that priest who came out of the temple and had had a vision and he couldn't speak yet? Well, his kid was born. And he wrote his name down and all of a sudden, crazy stuff started happening. This, who is that kid? His name's John. Let's keep our eyes out for that dude, okay? Now, here's the part of the story of John that we don't talk about. Okay, we talk about the crazy dude living in the desert. But where you have to start the story of John the Baptist is that John is born into a high priestly family. He has pedigree. 
If you remember when we were studying Luke earlier, both Zechariah and his mother Elizabeth are direct descendants of Aaron, like Moses and Aaron from the Old Testament. Now, in order to be a priest in Israel, you not only had to be a Levite, which is one of the 12 tribes, but you had to be a grandson of Aaron, a direct descendant. So there's not many of those guys, let alone are there many of these guys who from both sides of their family are direct descendants from Aaron. Now, I cannot stress this enough. You are almost in this room, not all, but almost all Americans in this room. Okay. And Americans are mutts. We're all mutts. And what I mean by that is you may say, well, you know, what's, what, where, do, you know, where did you, your family come from in America? And be like, oh, I'm Scott, I'm Scottish, or I'm Irish, or I'm Italian, all that stuff. Okay. No, you're not. You're an American. You're a mutt, right? If, you're, if your family's lived here long, we, we don't get into bloodlines and all that kind of stuff. But in Israel at this time, bloodline is everything. I can't stress that enough to you. Status comes from bloodline. So for him to be able to say, I am not only a Jew, I am not only of the covenant people of Israel, I am a Levite. And not only am I a Levite, but I am a grandson of Aaron. And not only am I a grandson of Aaron, I am a grandson from Aaron on both sides of my family. What up? Okay. This is status. The priests ruled Jerusalem. They ruled the temple. Okay, there's one dude a year who gets to go talk to God face to face. He's a priest. It's up to the priests to make your sacrifices. Meaning if you're not in good with the priests, your sacrifices don't get made. Your sins aren't forgiven. Power, they had influence, they had money. This is status. That's what John the Baptist is born into. He's born into a priestly family. You need to see this kid as privileged, as connected, as bloodline pedigree. Okay, in Israel's context, he was the stuff, all right? But we hear nothing more about him in this story until we find him living in the wild. His parents are old, we know that. They probably didn't live long. What happens to John the Baptist? I mean, what happens to this dude? The first, the one, one minute he's being born into a family of connection and privilege. And the next thing you know, in Luke 180, it says, and the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. That's it. This is one of those questions, by the way, you want to ask God. When you get to heaven and you get your 15 minutes of questions, you know, you've got them all written down. There's some ones you need to ask first. They're personal. And then you're going to get to the other ones like, did OJ really do it? Okay, I need to know that. I mean, I know the answer is yes, but I just want to hear from you. Go. Were there UFOs? No. You know, like what? You're going to be like all that kind of stuff. And then you, one of the questions you're going to ask is, what happened to John the Baptist? What happened to that dude? Okay. But one of the things we have to kind of get across is that when you see God's working in his people, his messengers almost always come in twos. You have Moses, but then Joshua finishes the deal. You have Saul, 
is the first king, but then David becomes the real king. Are you following me? John the Baptist starts the movement of God, but it's Jesus who will fulfill it. John the Baptist goes into the wilderness and then the craziest thing happens. And it's a thing that can only happen when the spirit of God falls. And you're gonna see exactly what I'm talking about. A dude with pedigree who should be living in Jerusalem in a condo and swinging and has connections is living in the wilderness and he becomes a phenomenon. I mean, he becomes the show, if you will. Check out this verse from Matthew chapter three. In Matthew chapter three, it says this. And then Jerusalem... And all Judea and the region around the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, when you read these phrases, Jerusalem, Judea, the region around the Jordan, that is basically Matthew's way of saying, everybody was going to hear this guy preach. I mean, everybody was going out to hear this dude preach. And people were coming back to Jerusalem and they were coming back to Bethany and they were saying, you have got to go hear this guy. You have got to hear this guy preach. And the way that the Bible sums up his message is using this kind of language. It uses words like confession. It uses words like sin. Luke Uh, We'll see in a few chapters, but I'll skip ahead to Luke chapter three, summarizes his message like this. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That is mind blowing. Now get ready for one of the craziest things about Judaism you don't know. Under Judaism, there is no forgiveness, none. Zero, zilch, negative, none. No forgiveness of sins that you commit intentionally. Meaning Judaism taught if you sin and it's an accident, you can be cleansed. But if you sin on purpose, you're done. You're out. One and done. And John the Baptist comes around saying, you can repent and be forgiven okay that is as paradigm shifting as they can get and here's the bigger deal if you're a gentile okay just about everybody in the room is gentile you're either a jew or gentile to these people all right there's no gray area jew or gentile if you're a gentile who wants to become one of god's people you're what they called a god fearer and in order to become an official god fearer you had to go be baptized in the jordan river Okay, so you went and you were baptized in the Jordan River and you were dunked seven times and then you came up and you were new. You weren't a Gentile anymore, but you weren't Jewish. You didn't get Jewish privileges. You were a God-fearer and you could come into the temple, into the outer court, but you couldn't come all the way in. Only Jews could go all the way in, but you were close. But it was totally unheard of for Jews to be baptized. See, they, they understood that Gentiles need to be baptized because they were nasty, gross heathens, right? 
ate pig and bacon and stuff and were glorious, okay? But these people, they're like, we don't, we, these people need to take a bath. They're gross. But we're Jews. We don't need cleansing. We're God's people. But John is baptizing God's people and telling them, you have to repent of your sins. But I have offerings. I have the sacrifices. And John is saying, you need to repent. You need to repent of your sins in order to be forgiven. That's crazy talk. Now, remember I told you he was a phenomenon? How do you become a phenomenon when you do stuff like this? Okay, this is in Luke, still in Luke. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Basically, the people are coming out going, I need to repent. He's going, who told you to come out here? You're supposed to go to hell. You can obviously build huge churches by doing that kind of stuff. People love that. Like, people pay their psychiatrists big dollars to hear that kind of stuff. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, get ready for this. I want you to see God's purpose come full circle. Because here comes the Jews to be baptized. He tells them, who told you to flee the wrath that's to come? Keep fruit in bearing with repentance. And then he says this. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, meaning we're Jews. So we're God's covenant people. We're good. For I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Old Testament image of Israel is of a tree that was planted in a garden. So here's a man raised with all the pedigree in the world who people knew was a pedigreed guy who is telling these people, your pedigree doesn't mean anything. Don't say to yourself, you're Abraham's kid. God can get a kid for Abraham from a rock. You're nothing. And guess what? The ax is at the root of the tree. Meaning God's about to cut you down. People flocked. They flocked to him because they realized what God was doing. And he says this, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. John the Baptist served a very unique role in the realm of the Bible. And it's this, John the Baptist was the last prophet of the law. When you open up your Bible and you look at Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, you're reading the giving of the law. Moses brings down the commandments. He institutes the law. David becomes the king, but then you have the age of the prophets. These are all the guys' names who sound like sneezes, all right? From Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the way to Habakkuk and Malachi. Those are the prophets of the law. And John the Baptist is the last one. John the Baptist is the last prophet. And if you need proof of that, Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 13, says this, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. They prophesied until John, meaning he's the last one. And not only was John a prophet of the law, he was a prophecy. In the Old Testament, you can open up verses, open up books of the Bible and find verses about John the Baptist. In every single one of the Gospels, Isaiah chapter 40 is quoted about John the Baptist. And this is what it says. 
voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places the plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. People would come to John the Baptist and they would say, who are you? What's your job? What are you doing? And he would say, I am the voice in the wilderness calling out, make the way straight for the Lord. If you want to see something crazy cool, watch this. In Mark, Mark is probably the first gospel that ever was written. Mark not only uses Isaiah chapter 40, he also uses Malachi chapter 3. And this is what he says in Malachi chapter 3. Malachi says, uh, prophecies the Lord saying this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, here's what's interesting about it. In the first part of this, you see this. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, you've heard me tell you a million times. The Gospels are not biographies. If you open up the Gospels and you try to read them like you would read a biography, you're going to get messed up because they do not tell the stories in linear fashion, meaning they aren't, you don't open up and go, on March 4th in 8, Jesus did this. Like, <laughs> it's, not, it's not that, okay? Rather... They are historical narratives that are trying to prove a point. Now, here's the example that I want to hammer into your brain before you graduate and go off to wherever you go. If I write a biography on Abraham Lincoln, you expect it to go like this. Abraham Lincoln's born in a log cabin in Kentucky. He moves to Illinois. He lives in Illinois for a while, blah, 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 blah. He tries a business, he fails. He runs for office, he fails. He tries to be a lawyer, he fails. He runs for office again, he fails. He tries to become a businessman again, he fails. He tries to become a businessman again, he fails. He tries to become a businessman again, he fails. He runs for office again, he fails. So then finally he got elected president. <laughs> like that really is Lincoln's story too, if you've never heard that. It's like, I'll just be president, okay. Like, anyway. And you're going to listen to it go certain ways. And you're going to hear, okay, so he was president for a while. So he takes his biggest political rivals and he makes them his cabinet. And people think he's crazy, but he knows he needs everybody on his side. And, and I'm, I'm going to tell these stories all the way through, uh, finally, the Emancipation Proclamation and then the Civil War uh, that was surrounded him and all these things that's going to end in Ford's Theater and then the ramifications of Lincoln's life. That's about our favorite Lincoln. If, on the other hand, I try to tell you a story or I try to say to you, I'm writing a book about Lincoln. And my book about Lincoln is why Abraham Lincoln was the greatest president that the U.S. has ever had. Then I'm going to take all those events and jumble them around. And I might start with Abraham Lincoln trying to fire the first general, George McClellan, of the Union armies because the guy was crazy and never did his job. Uh, and trying to save Ulysses S. Grant's job until he could get him to be the general, using one of the greatest lines. I love this line. 
Lincoln wrote about Grant, I cannot spare this man. He fights. It's a great line. And then I'm going to go to him getting Edwin Stanton to be his secretary of war. And then I'm going to go back to his living as a lawyer. I'm going to jumble those events around. Now, if you read a biography, him being a lawyer comes into his early 20s. But if you read Why is the Greatest President, him being a lawyer may be at the very end of the book. Are you following me? So people will open up the Gospels and they'll read in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Jesus cleansed the temple at the end of his life. And then they open up John and see it at the beginning. And they go, ha, ha, ha. See, the Bible's not true. It's all messed up. You're all stupid. I'm going to go party now. Which is really just about them wanting to party. Not about the Bible not being true. Because the gospel authors move the events around to prove their point. John is trying to prove that Jesus is God. That's why he writes his gospel. And so in, Jesus, in John's gospel, you have John the Baptist appear, the voice, the messenger preparing the way. And then guess what the next story is? The wedding at Canaan. Where Jesus announces himself with a miracle. And then guess what the next story is? He cleanses the temple. Why? Because I will send my messenger and then the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Boom. <laughs> See, if a Jew had studied his Bible and knew his Bible, when he figured out who John the Baptist is, if he's sitting there and he's looking at John the Baptist and all of a sudden he gets, this is the voice of the one crawling in the wilderness. This is the one who's come to prepare the way of the Lord. He'd have taken off running. Like, Where are you going? I'm going to the temple because God's going to show up. They would have known to have been looking for that. What is, happens when Jesus shows up? Cataclysm. He sees not fruit, but he sees rather people turning the court of the Gentiles into a mockery. He makes a whip and goes to Indiana Jones. You have to begin to read these things with this kind of idea because here's the thing. John the Baptist fulfills all these appearances. He's a prophecy himself. He's the one who was calling out for the Lord. He's the one who prepares the way. He's related to Jesus by blood. He has all the pedigree on the planet, but something happens to him that makes him go live in the desert. The Bible describes him as wearing animal skins in the desert. Okay, In Jesus' place, they wore linen tunics because it was hot. This guy's wearing leather in the desert. He eats bugs. And this is not like, you know, fear factor. This is a dude living out there prophesying until eventually he calls the king of the land out and says, you're an adulterer and you're sleeping with your brother's wife, who, by the way, is a whore. That does not sit well with the queen who wants him killed, which is what happens to him. And I want you to take two pieces of encouragement from John the Baptist's life. If you can't already realize that God may take you to places you can't imagine to do things through you, you would never understand. But number one is this, John the Baptist is in prison. He's done nothing but speak the truth. He's done exactly what God wanted him to do. He's done exactly for what he was born for. And one day while he's sitting in prison, waiting to be let go or killed, not knowing that the king is going to let a teenage girl strip for him and then let her ask for his head. And that's how John the Baptist dies. 
And he writes Jesus a letter. And in that letter, John the Baptist writes, were you the one? Should, should we have been looking for somebody else? Did I waste my life? Now I want you to get that in Luke chapter seven, Jesus says, I tell you this, among those born of women, none is greater than John. No one is greater than John. And I want you to hear that there was a day that John the Baptist wrote Jesus a letter and goes, are you the one? Was it worth it? You're gonna have that day. You're gonna have a lot of those days. And you're gonna have those days where in your heart and in your mind, you are seriously going, are you the one, Jesus, really? And I want you to hear you're not alone. That the guy that Jesus called the greatest wrote the same letter. Jesus, of course, answers him Jesus style. He doesn't say, yeah. He says, you go back and you tell John this. The lame walk and the blind see and blessed is he who does not fall away on account of me. For John, it was enough. You're gonna have this day. If you haven't had it already, you're gonna. Wait, be patient. Kids are in your future. You need to know that even the greatest question and receive mercy. But I also want you to see that John the Baptist is a prophecy. He's an instrument of God. He's a voice of God. He's the last prophet of the law. He was mentioned by Isaiah. He's the voice in the wilderness. But Jesus says, and I tell you, as great as this man is, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater. See, John the Baptist was visited by the Holy Spirit from time to time. But for the one who has received the gift of the Holy Spirit because of Christ, he's a permanent resident. In the last song that we sang tonight, one of the lines was, look how rich I am, basically. My riches, look at my rich condition. What you have in Christ is greater than what John the Baptist ever had. The least in the kingdom of heaven is greater. Why? Because they're worth more? No, because they've received more. God's mercy has fallen. And the Holy Spirit lives and resides as a part of us. John the Baptist is gonna play a critical role in the book of Luke as we go forward. You're going to watch one culture fade and you're gonna watch another culture rise. Gone, the sun sets unrighteousness through the law. It's no longer up to you to be good. You can't do it. You never could. The days of earning your place at God's table are over and the sun has risen on the day where it's all mercy given to you as a gift who through faith will believe the grace of God made known. And this is the guy who gets to preach the first message. 
He gave the first message of Christian belief. Behold, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He gave the first message on the Christian life. I must decrease. He must increase. Maybe we'll see him in heaven. If you go out to the desert, he may be hanging out there. Learn from him. And know that where the Holy Spirit takes you is a point and a purpose and a plan and a reality that God weaves together tapestries we couldn't know. Both of these miracle babies are gonna be betrayed and murdered for things they didn't do for the glory of God. Wow. Let's pray together. Father God, you do more than anything we could ask or imagine. You are above and beyond anything we could think of. You weave together threads in such a way that to us, it looks like the back of a rug, disjointed, ugly strands of thread going everywhere. But if we could just flip it over and see the tapestry woven together, the beautiful picture. If we could see the design that you've woven together that wouldn't look right without the darks in their places and the lights, the light colored threads in their places. God, there are days in John the Baptist's life that are victory and joy and there are days in John the Baptist's life that are hardship and pain and we're not gonna be any different. And I pray that you can give us the words you gave him we can make our life be summed up in behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. That we have a private prayer that we must decrease so he can increase. And Father, let us learn from him on the day where we have nothing but doubt. And let us ask the same question, are you the one? So that we can hear your answer again and again. You're blessed, don't fall away. God, I pray you print, imprint us for your glory and by your grace. And so it's in our Savior King's name, Jesus, we pray. All these things. Amen.